Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm Kelvin. Welcome to another great episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm so excited to have a fellow Southerner on the pod today. We sat down with another one of our distinguished geopolitics fellows, former Southerner from Alabama and U.S. Attorney Doug Jones. Before we get started with the interview with Senator Doug Jones, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to Fly on the Wall Pod cast at gmail.com. Hi, Senator Jones. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with Fly on the Wall and chat a little bit more about your long career. Uh, it's my pleasure, guys. I have really enjoyed uh, my time at Georgetown. The, uh, the, the weeks have just flown by and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm so Great glad to hear. to hear that. All right. So we'll kick off our first question um, to learn a little bit more about your career. So what first made you interested in a legal career? Well, you know, I think it's a, it, it goes way, way back. It goes back to college a little bit. I mean, I came in, I went into college thinking I might try to go into medical school or dental school or something. But I got I, I got involved a lot in campus politics. Um, and a lot of my friends were all moving to, to get into law school. And I had had some, some experiences in high school uh, where I sat in on some trials and some things. And it just seemed to me that all of a sudden I realized that um, going to medical school or dental school was something my parents were more interested in than me. And I really liked the idea of being able to get into a career that would take me more into a policy arena, uh, both representing folks and also the potential political part of it uh, as well. But mainly the policy arena where you can do a lot of things, got involved in a lot of stuff in college. And ended up deciding, okay, this is this is where I'd, I'd like to go. I'd like to do it law school, and my was such that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to get into courtrooms as well as do some of this policy issues. So it just it kind of drifted there over the course of you know a, a couple of years, my early years in college at the University of Alabama. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, our next question for you is: You've worked in both the public and the private sector. How do those experiences differ, and what do you take from both? Well, the main difference, but to be honest with you, is the money. Um, you know, and when you're in the public sector, you're playing with tax dollars, and it is, it is, it, there is a limit on on the salary you can get. That's one big difference. But you know, I I, I was really fortunate in my career that I kind of went back and forth between the public sector and the private sector. I started out working in the Senate for a year and then went straight from there, continuing in the uh, uh, public sector as an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, when it was time to start raising a family and making a little more money, I left, became a, uh, went into private practice. But I would continue to do the same things. You know, and then I went back as a federal prosecutor, as U.S. attorney, then left again. You know, for me, being on both sides of a courtroom, uh, particularly with criminal work, prosecutor, then defense lawyer, then also in civil cases in my private practice, I'd be a plaintiff lawyer um, one minute and a defense lawyer the next. You know, that experience to me really gives you um, an interesting side of your profession and what to do and and different insights. And that really helped me, I think, in the U.S. Senate 
because when you are working on both sides of a courtroom and you've got experience on both sides, you tend to really work to try to find common ground to get matters resolved. And so I took that to the United States Senate. But the public sector is incredibly rewarding. And I think people that do that or have got a calling to do it, they, they're doing it to try to make the world, their communities a better place. And I really got so much out um, of my uh, public sector work. So I tried to, try to do, carry that forward with a lot that I did, even in the private sector, doing a lot of fair amount of pro bono work and a lot of just speaking and doing things to try to stay involved in the, in the greater community. Yeah, definitely. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about your public sector work. So one of the most high profile cases you prosecuted as a U.S. attorney was the infamous 16th Street Baptist Church bombing of 1963, which was only prosecuted in 2002. So why do you think it took so long for the case to be prosecuted? Well, it, it, there is a combination of things. And, and first, uh, I, get, I guess this is so recent, people forget that the first one of those cases was actually prosecuted in 1977, 14 years after the bombing. An Alabama, young Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley uh, took the case on. He was in law school at the time that the bombing happened. And he was a very young, he was elected in 1970 as Alabama's Attorney General at age 28. He was the youngest AG in the country. Uh, and he took on that case and in 1977, uh, he took to trial a fellow named Robert Chambliss, also known as Dynamite Bob. And I was a second year law student at the time in Birmingham, and I cut classes to go watch that trial. Again, as I said a minute ago, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And one of the late uh, Supreme Court justices who I'd had an opportunity to spend a day with, William O. Douglas, told me that the best way to learn to be a trial lawyer was watch good lawyers try their cases. So I sat in on that case, and then it was 24 years later that I had the opportunity. And there was a combination of things. Number one, that, that took so long. Number one, the clan, the, those people that knew something, they, they just, they clammed up. And in those days, you didn't have the same kind of technology and, and evidence gathering that you have today. Um, and they had a very, very difficult time. The FBI spent an incredible amount of time trying to make that case, but the, 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 the Klan silence was so strong that they couldn't get it to crack. And you, they just could not make the case strong enough in the 1960s and early 70s to try to make the case. And when I say strong enough, they had evidence, but in those days, uh, what, what would have amounted to an all white male jury would have probably not convicted these guys. And so they did not try. And I'm glad they didn't because double jeopardy would have attached if they'd have been found not guilty. And so it took a new generation of prosecutors and investigators uh, to, to start looking at the cases in a different way. And frankly, it also took uh, a society moving away from bringing your biases and prejudices into the jury room um, and, and judging the evidence fairly. Uh, if the changes in Birmingham and the country had not changed over the over time. It, I don't know if we could have gotten the conviction because the evidence wasn't incredibly strong. Um, but it, so it was that whole combination of the inability to, to crack through with the Klan, society that was still reluctant to uh, convict people in these crimes. All of that change took a while. And then quite frankly, 
it took a combination of things to get these cold civil rights cases back on the radar. The first one was tried in the 1990s, 1994. That was the murder of Medgar Evers. Byron Dayla Beckwith was convicted in Mississippi. He had been, it was a mistrial twice. And it took that conviction all of a sudden for people to start realizing that you can go back. There's no statute of limitations for murder. You can go back and you can repackage the evidence. You might can get new evidence and put this in front of a jury and a jury, a more modern jury will do the right thing. So it was just a whole bunch of things that just came together just at the right time in the right place for us. All of that sounds like an incredibly intense experience. Thanks for sharing that with us. All I would like to ask is, what are some of the most impactful moments for you during the case? Wow, um, there, there, there were several, I, I think. I think opening my opening statement was impactful for me and the community because it had taken another 24 years. I tried two cases, one in 2001, the second one in 2002. And there was so much pent up um, anxiety about these cases. I think the opening statement for me in the Blanton case in May of 2001 was an incredibly uh, important point. And it was, it was like, okay, it's, it's here and let's do this. And I also made a comment in the opening statement that I've thought about a lot over time because in, in that opening statement, I called what happened in Birmingham in 1963 an act of terrorism before we use the term terrorism uh, like we do now, but it was an act of terrorism. And just three months later after that, you saw 9-11 happen. And so it all came home. So that opening statement was really powerful to me. Um, the, the, the two other, I had a, some of the witnesses were very powerful. I had a gentleman who was, uh, who saw Blanton and Ch uh, Chambliss the night before, uh, two weeks before the bombing. He was an older gentleman, uh, but he couldn't testify. We read his testimony because he had had a stroke. Uh, and just seeing and hearing his testimony was impactful. We had a tape recording uh, in the Blanton case that proved to be especially damning to uh, Blanton. Uh, and then the, the closing arguments. Um, but in, in all candor, I think the most impactful part of the trial was listening to the family members who lost a, a, a daughter or a sister um, those were very moving. You know, Maxine McNair, whose daughter Lisa, uh, uh, Denise died, was at the, in the choir loft and she started screaming, my baby, my baby, when, she heard, when the bomb went off in, in the church. Chris McNair, her husband, had to identify uh, Denise's body at the morgue, still with a piece of mortar embedded in her skull. Um, Junie Collins talking about <clears throat> having to identify Addie Mae and then the last one, and probably the critical point, the most emotional uh, witness, was the fifth little girl, Sarah Collins Rudolph, who survived. And talking about, um, you know, being at the sink in the ladies' lounge, and the last thing she remembers seeing was her sister tying the sash of Denise McNair's new dress, and then the bomb exploded. And when I asked her what she said, she said she called out for her sister, and you could hear her, she, just like she did you know, at the time calling out Addie, Addie, 
Addie and her voice rising. That was a powerful moment uh, when I asked her if she ever saw her alive again. And she said, no, sir. That, I don't think I'll ever have a more powerful moment in the courtroom. That was an incredibly moving answer. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. So now we'd like to pivot from your time in the courtroom to your time on the Hill. Long before you were a Senator, you were staff counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Howell Heflin. How was it like returning to Capitol Hill later on? Oh, it was an amazing, uh, you know, to be able to walk onto the floor of the U.S. Senate um, in my old boss's seat, walking onto the floor of the Senate where I left as a young staffer, coming back uh, to take, uh, to be sworn in with his seat was just, a, it was an emotional day. It was an amazing day. Uh, and I was ready. I mean, I, I, we hit the ground running. The Senate is a lot different than it was in 1979 and 1980 when I worked for Judge Heflin. Um, I called him Judge Heflin because he was a former Supreme Court just, uh, Justice in Alabama, and everybody continued to call him Judge, uh, even though he was in the Senate. Uh, but it, it's a lot different. But um, I had known from my time with him that you can make a difference in the people's lives. And I think we did that. And he guided me an awful lot during that, that time. Um, I, I, I referenced him a lot in speeches and his teaching and his wisdom really helped me uh, in my role, which is to try to get things done. And we were able to pass 22 bills, um, which is pretty remarkable for a freshman senator, but only there for three years. Um, but it was, it, 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 for me, it was just, it, it's hard to describe coming back full circle to where you started your career. You worked on a variety of issues on the Hill from veterans benefits to equitable internet access. What issues are you most proud for having worked on? Well, there's a, there, there are a couple of things. I think that one of the real highlights of my uh, tenure was being able to uh, finally get uh, something through to eliminate what was known as the military widow's tax. Uh, for 20 or almost 30 years, uh, military widows uh, had, had not gotten the full benefits they deserved. And it was called a widow's tax. They would, there, there was a, there's a statutory benefit that um, a military uh, widows or widowers, as the case may be, uh, get if their spouse dies from a service-related injury or death. But then they would also personally buy personal insurance, kind of like, you know, excess insurance on top of that as part of their estate plan. They paid for it out of their own money. And so you had these two buckets of benefits. And what happened was about 30 some odd years ago, Congress decided to offset those, to combine them. So these people, these widows were not getting their benefit. These were, were widows primarily of service members who gave it all for this country and the family sacrificed. And, you know, and for 20 years, these widows would come up to Capitol Hill trying to get that eliminated. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but at $1,200 a month is a lot for some of these folks. And I just thought that was appalling when I learned about it. I just thought it was unbelievable that the federal government would do that to these Gold Star families. And they tried, literally tried for 20 years, a bill introduced every year, and they couldn't get it done because it involved a, a money. And I worked with Susan Collins, and we got overwhelming bipartisan support, and we just did not give up. No one gave us a chance of doing that. And we finally got it done, and it was the highlight. I had 30 of those widows in the gallery on the day we passed it in the Senate. 
And it was an incredibly emotional uh, time. Those widows are still, I still get comments from, from them. That was a really important piece. It sounds like a small piece, but I am so proud of the work that we did on that particular bill. There were others that I've got a cold case bill. We were talking about the church funding bill. First bill that I got passed was the Cold Case Records Collection Act. Uh, the president is about to appoint a five-member commission to, to gather up all these cold case records uh, and then uh, release them to the public. It was modeled off the Kennedy Commission, and I had said for so many years that these cold cases could not be prosecuted. The people were, you know, the defendants were dead, witnesses were dead. But I thought that they should release the records so that the community, the families, and historians could look at it and try to help with this racial reconciliation. That bill, Ted Cruz and I worked on that bill together, and it passed. President Trump signed it, but he didn't appoint the commission. And I got a call. Literally, I've had three calls in the last two days with the White House. They're about to name the commission and get that going. So I'm really proud of that bill as well. A lot of things that we did. I'm really proud of the record we built for the people of Alabama. Yeah, definitely. So going off of that answer, during your time as senator, you gained a reputation for your ability to work with colleagues across the aisle. What successful strategies did you use to make bipartisanship a reality in Congress? Well, I think it it it, it really involved building relationships um, and understanding and doing what I can to try to understand somebody else's point of view. Um, as, as you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how I dealt with both sides of, a, of the courtroom. I think that that experience doing that helped me understand and know other sides of, of, of a lot of issues. Uh, because you've got to just, you, you can't just talk to people. You really got to listen to them and understand where they're coming from. And if you can do that, you can find common ground. You know, um, being idealistic is not inconsistent with being practical. And, you know, I never compromised my basic principles. But what you find is if you, if you work on it, there's so much in America that is a bipartisan goal. And I use that term um, strategically. Uh, there's so much. And if you realize that we have so much, the goals are the same infrastructure, voting, all of those goals, healthcare for everybody that we can get healthcare for, good education, all of those are goals that everybody has. The, the, the breakdown occurs in how to get there. You can't find a Republican or Democrat who will not say, I want to get the best education possible for, for kids in this country. You can't find one that said, that will not tell you, I want to provide for a strong national defense. I want to give uh, good health care for everybody. It's getting there. And so if you start from the fact that you recognize people really want to get the same thing, then you can figure out the best way to get there. And that's the strategy that I tried to employ. Uh, it is really difficult because people can get in their partisan corners about the way to get there. But you just have to keep coming back and reminding people of what you're trying to do and the goals you're trying to achieve and make sure that folks understand it is about the people of this country and not about your political party. I'll tell you the other thing I said in my closing, my, my farewell speech to the Senate. I asked my colleagues to quit using the word negotiations when they're talking about uh, what they were doing with legislation. 
Because when you when the, when the American people hear that Democrats are negotiating with Republicans or Republicans are negotiating with Democrats, what they're hearing is that they're trying to get the best thing for Republicans or the best thing for Democrats, not for the American people. And they should quit and they should leave that, that conversation alone and talk about we are doing our best to find common ground and, and to help the American people and get away from that word negotiation. I hate that word when it comes to legislation. So you focused your senatorial career around bipartisanship, but sadly we've seen growing partisanship in American politics over the past few years. What do you believe are critical strategies the nation needs to, to reverse this trend? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think we need to get rid of gerrymandering. I think we need to have nonpartisan drawing of, of political districts for state houses and state legislatures, uh, as well as Congress. Uh, right now, with the way these, these districts are so gerrymandered, people in, in these positions do not have to get to a, a, a very significant percentage of the electorate in order to win. You have to hit a small percentage in your primary, and then you're in effect elected. So I think gerrymandering is a huge, serious issue that if we can get away with and make more uh, competitive districts out there and, and make people not only compete for the votes, but understand that they've got to represent everybody once they get elected. I think that's the biggest problem. That is the biggest problem for me uh, in America. The second thing though, that I think we got to have more profiles and courage. I think people need to call out their political leaders. I think if, I think Republicans need to call out uh, some of the crap that we hear um, from them, uh, from their leaders uh, about stealing elections and things like that. Likewise, I think Democrats have to call out some folks too when we have issues that come up and we don't have enough of that. And we've got to get more people that are, I think, that are willing to be more pragmatic in politics and not so dogmatic in their political, political philosophy, not personal principles, but political philosophy and political goals they need to be a little bit more pragmatic because the issue is about the country and people. It is not about your political career or your political party. Yeah, that was an incredibly insightful answer. So as we've learned throughout this conversation, you've done so much to advocate for the people of Alabama as a U.S. attorney and a senator. How do you plan on continuing this work? Well, I, I appreciate you asking that. Pretty soon we're going to have a couple of announcements about some things we're going to affiliate with a law firm here in DC, but I'm also, they, they're gonna give me some leeway to do a lot of the things to continue to be an advocate. I'm also gonna affiliate with, uh, with one of the democratic policy think tanks up here. Uh, those announcements hopefully will come pretty soon. Uh, that's gonna allow me to continue a lot of advocacy for racial equality, um, social justice, and the things that, that have been important to me. And we're looking at some things uh, from a political side to really start making an influence in the South. Uh, I think that the South needs to be more competitive in our political systems in order uh, to uh, progress. And I think there, the, the South is this new frontier, I believe, for progressive values and for uh, change. Uh, so many of the divisions in this country started in the South, and we can now be the, that, that area that starts a lot of healing. And so I am 
I, uh, this, this semester has been great for me to be reflective with all the Georgetown family on bridging the partisan divides, uh, bridging divides in America. And I am, as soon as, as this is completed and I start this next phase, uh, I'm going to be back out there publicly a good bit. That's nice to hear, Sider. So that's the end of all of our serious questions. But now we're about to go into the lightning round. Where we ask oh. questions and uh -oh. answers. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What is your favorite book right now? Uh, you know, I, I am reading a book right now called uh, Shaking the Gates of Hell, which is written by a friend of mine in Birmingham who's a journalist. And it's about his father, who was a Methodist minister, um, who did not speak up in the time of civil rights as much. And John Archibald wrote it. It's a great book. And it's, it's, it's his struggle with his failure, his dad's failure, because he loved his father. His father was a great man, but he failed to speak up. And it's kind of like Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail about the good people being silent. Um, that is a, that's the, that's the, that's my favorite book right now. I definitely love to check it out. So next question, as a Southerner myself, I have to ask, what is your favorite Southern comfort food? Oh no, it's a combination. It is not one food, it's a combination. Baked beans and potato salad would be the last meal that I would request. I don't care if I have meat, I don't care, you know, I mean, I love fried chicken, I love Southern food, but if I, if I have a plate of baked beans and potato salad in front of me, I am in heaven. Great answer, I definitely agree. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. I, I have tried to do that in, in my politics. I've tried to do that in my legal career. I think if you're not that, you're going to fall. And uh, sometimes it takes a little courage to do that, to stand up and speak out. Um, but in the long run, you live with yourself. Uh, you're the only person that really lives with yourself. And to do that, and I think if people will do that uh, more, they will succeed and not try to bend to somebody else's uh, uh, wishes. Just be true to yourself. Definitely, that's such a powerful answer. So with that, that uh, wraps up our conversation with you, Senator Jones. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with us. My pleasure, guys. It's been a real joy working with Georgetown and I uh, hope to see everybody again in the future. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Senator Jones. Make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.